I want to ask you a a personal question, and don't worry, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I want to ask you where you stand on the conflict scale. You need to be thinking, yeah, this is me. Which of the following would best describe you? A, I hate conflict and will do almost anything to avoid it. I know some of you are like that. B, I don't like conflict, but if it's necessary, especially if it's a worthy cause, I'll, I'll deal with it. I'll weigh it in. C, I welcome a good challenge, and if that includes conflict, so be it. D, I'm looking for a fight. Meet me out back after church. (laughs) It's those of you in D that really trouble me. I guess I fit in in category B. I just, I, I really don't like conflict, much to the surprise of many of you, I would imagine. Um, I mean, I, I enjoy debate. It's kind of like G.K. Chesterton said about his brother. Uh, they, they argued incessantly, so, so much so that when people would see them walking down the street, they'd cross the street just to avoid them. And he said, well, sure, we've argued a great deal, but I'm happy to say we've never quarreled. There's a difference, you know, in arguing and quarreling. I don't like conflict, but if it's necessary, then, then I'll deal with it, especially when it comes to theology. If you... Put yourself in category A, then life is not going to be easy for you as a Christ follower. Jesus certainly never promised an easy life. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I, I, earth, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So I was writing those words out. I was thinking, it's just so not my situation. And then yesterday I talked with one of our former students who's Life very much is that. Mother, father, sister, all unsaved and all very antagonistic about the gospel. Well, if you're looking for purpose in your life, if you're a Christ follower, whatever he calls you to do, lose your life in him. Be our primary purpose to just lose ourselves in him. In John 15, 16 and 17, Jesus said to his disciples, and by extension to us, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Then in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The life of a Christian in many ways is a life of conflict. The world doesn't understand us. And the message of Jesus is particularly repugnant to them, to the world today especially. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no one comes to the Father except through me. How dare he say that? How dare he say that he's the only one? Well, actually, most people would deny, even though it's right there in John 14, 6, they would deny that Jesus ever said it, but they accuse us of believing that. And they hate us 
for that exclusive message. But it's the truth we believe. And we proclaim it in love to a lost world. But there's going to be conflict. But conflict also arises among those who seek to understand the truth that we find in God's Word. And there's a fair amount of disagreement about the doctrine of the Trinity among those who claim to have a relationship with Jesus. Is it that big of a deal to get it right? Is it that important to be so precise about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and their relationship with one another? I mean, do we have to be exact about whether or not Jesus has always existed or perhaps He was created, although created in a very special way? Well, let's put it this way. If Jesus is going to say, your only hope of a relationship with God Almighty, God the Father, is to come through me. And a great deal, and it's all based on our belief in Him, we better understand who that He is, who He says He is, and who we know Him to be from God's Word. Now, throughout this series, we're going to be talking about orthodox doctrine. In fact, you may hear me say that at any time, talking about orthodox theology. When you hear something along the lines of the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Greek Orthodox or, or Russian, that's not what we mean by the term orthodox. What is meant is the right, the correct and accepted teaching of the true universal church. Now, this teaching has been hammered out through the centuries. It's not the differences between Baptist and Methodist. It's the difference between what we believe in Scripture to be the fundamental absolutely essential, non-negotiable doctrines about who God is and about His relationship to the world and about our relationship with Him. And this has been hammered out through the centuries, particularly most of the important issues were, were dealt with in the first five centuries, and especially in the fourth century with regard to the Trinity. The church has lost its way from time to time and, and needed reformation, but but the big doctrines were were debated and and determined back in the day. Doesn't mean we all still agree with what the orthodox position is, but in Christendom, in, amongst those who call themselves Christians. So, so if it was done back then, why concern ourselves today? I mean, I've asked myself that a hundred times this week as I've prepared this lesson that is a good bit about history. Why is it so important that we deal with it today? Well, for a couple of reasons. Even though the true universal church has settled on the truth, teachers who are in error about who Jesus was continue to attract an audience today. Some of them are very, very good speakers and, and, and attract quite a following. And many, of their, many of their heresies are, are repeats or are close repeats of of early theological mistakes. So it's helpful to gain a bit of understanding about the issues that were so hotly debated in years gone by. And also, it's just a part of our heritage. We talked about last week, we're connected with the past whether we want to be or not. And it's important for us to understand some of the issues. Before we read our text today, you need to know that the biggest theological battles about the Trinity back in those early years of the church were over whether or not Jesus was God. Once that was accepted, and once it was accepted that He was eternal, pre-existent, He's always existed along with God the Father, then it was not much debate about whether the Holy Spirit would be accepted. Now, there were battles about the Holy Spirit, 
uh, along other lines, and we'll talk about some of those as we go along in, in, in this series. But our focus this morning is on Jesus' deity or his claim that he was God. Now, this morning's text is, is one of the classic texts in which Jesus declared not only de- divinity and deity, but also an eternal existence. In John 8, Jesus' teachings were challenged by the Pharisees. Uh, They questioned Jesus' credentials to teach in the first place, and and Jesus told them in language that they understood that he was God. He used the same name for himself that God had used for himself in Exodus 3.14 when he told, identified himself to Moses by saying, I am, this is who I am, I am. It's interesting that so many people have wondered whether or not Jesus claimed to be God. They say, well, you really can't get that from Scripture. Pharisees didn't have any question whatsoever who Jesus was claiming to be. Their response indicates to us that they knew exactly what he was saying. So we're going to read John 8, 31 to 59. It's a rather lengthy passage, but, it, but all the issues about truth and all of the issues about Jesus' claim and the debate about who Jesus was makes this worth our time. Please know, uh, as we start off here, that Jesus was initially talking to those who had believed in him, but very quickly, unbelievers interrupted the conversation and started challenging him. So if you would, please stand as we read John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So much said in that one verse. You know, just in the chapter before, the Pharisees had challenged those who tried to defend Jesus, saying, Look in the Scriptures, no prophet ever comes from Nazareth, from Galilee. And yet they knew that There were questions surrounding his birth. They knew everything about him and yet rejected who he, who the scriptures indicated that he was and who he claimed to be. And they said, we worship one God. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord. But he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? 
It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why would you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we ask that you would open our hearts of understanding. Give us interest as well as understanding this morning. And Father, may we be ever more committed to truth. Make it clear to us this day and help us to apply those things that we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. And can be seen. There were so many things being said in that exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. It would be fairly easy to just write the Pharisees off as spiritually proud and and spiritually blind. You, and you would be right in doing so. You'd be right in saying that, that that was the case. As I've already mentioned, they had a lot of proof that Jesus was the Messiah. We, we talked about last month that He was not the Messiah that they were looking for, but He wasn't the Messiah that anybody was looking for. Even after His his death and resurrection, the disciples said, okay, Jesus, now? Now are you going to establish the kingdom? Jesus said, that's not for you to determine. It's not Father will... Makes sense of that, and then he went to heaven. Just to, right up until the very end, until Pentecost, nobody understood that he was going to be the kind of Messiah that he turned out to be. And, and when we look at this exchange, we have to at least acknowledge the Pharisees' objection to Jesus' claims of divinity were rooted in, in their understanding or misunderstanding, as 
as, as the case turned out to be, of the God of the Old Testament. God said unequivocally in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. One God. So when Jesus claimed to come from God, they shot back quickly in essence, We worship one God, not two. You can't have come from God in the way that you claim, or you would be God. And there's only one God. Now we all understand from the Old Testament that God is one. So when Jesus came on the scene, and they realized that the Holy Spirit also is of the same essence of God, or the claim is that He is of the same essence of God, do we now worship three gods? No. The New Testament is quite clear that we worship one. Romans three twenty nine to 30 is only one New Testament text that clearly states this truth, God is one. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? By the way, as the church moved towards becoming far more Gentile than Jewish, it would have been easy, not only it would have been very, very helpful for the church to adopt a belief in three gods. There was a great deal of polytheism in the first century. Everybody... Christians were called atheists by the Romans because they only believed in one God. They didn't believe in the gods. They certainly didn't believe in any kind of God that the, that the pagans did. So, when Paul says, no, 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 there's only one God, that was significant. How does that jibe with Jesus' claim that he was absolutely God? The question that, that's the question that, that the early church felt compelled to answer. And they were forced to use extra-biblical language. Like, for instance, even the, t- the title of, of, that we give to God, Trinity. He is a triune God. That's extra-biblical. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. So why do we have to use language that is not found in Scripture to explain who God is? Well, the answer is very simple. Because we have the tendency to make Scripture say anything that we want it to say. You know somebody like that? Perhaps you saw him or her in the mirror this morning. I mean, we all have that tendency, you know, to say, okay, this is what the verse says, all right, and this is what I believe in, and just don't even bother me by telling me that it might mean something different than I, I want it to mean. It would seem easy enough to say, you know, all you need to do is to go to Scripture and quote verses like John eight fifty eight, where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. But you see... The Jews had a problem with that, and they said there's only one God, not two. And in fact, you already said, well, people would say later, Jesus said that he came from God. Not that he was God, he came from God. He didn't come of his own will, we just read a while ago. But the Father sent him, it was the Father who determined him, and so he must not be equal with God. So what was the church to do with Jesus' clear statements that the Father and the Son were one. The debates were quite intense, quite interesting, and quite technical. Incredibly technical, in fact. I'm going to give you the simplest version of, uh, of what went on, especially back in the fourth century. But you've got to understand that even though very precise language was used, 
people didn't mean the same thing when they were using the same language. Orthodox teaching about the Trinity is only clear to us today. You know, we, it's a lot we don't understand. That's why we're talking about the mystery, of, exploring the mystery of the Trinity. And remember, mystery is something that was previously unknown, but has now been revealed by God. But it's still mysterious, this idea that He's three and yet He's one. Three persons, one essence. That's, that's difficult to get our head around. But we accept it and we just move on without a great deal of conflict in our heart and mind as we approach the rest of Scripture, only because all of these debates took place back in the 4th century. The tedious work that theologians did over, really, over the first five centuries, but especially that fourth one in the 300s. Speaking of theologians, if you are a Christ follower, then you are a theologian automatically. Anytime you interpret Scripture at all, you have become a theologian. The question is whether you're a good one or not. I mean, contemporary theologians from Bart to Bultmann to, to Sproul to Moltmann and the J.I. Packer all sound the cry for believers to study Scripture in order to better know the God of the Bible. I don't agree with a lot of what some of those guys that I just mentioned said, but everybody who approaches Scripture recognizes that it's the responsibility of every one of us to figure it out, to get it as, as close to, to, to what God intended us to have as possible. So are you going to study the Trinity in this series at the level that some of us are? Of course not. That's why God gave teachers to the church. And you need to know that this is a group effort. Um, It's not just me. I mean, David and Sean and KJ in particular are helping me. And if I say anything that's wrong, it's probably coming from them. So you'll you'll know that. I do the right stuff. They do the... No, just kidding. But nonetheless, it, it is your responsibility to study and to study as well as you can and, and to know and to be as accurate as possible when determining what you believe about the teachings of Scripture. It's one of the answers to the question of today's message. What's the big deal about getting the Trinity right? Well, theologians in the first three centuries like Irenaeus and Tertullian and Origen all made attempts at talking about these three parts of the, of the Godhead, these three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, they weren't terribly precise. And when viewed in, in light of later understanding, you might say, oh, that's a little bit suspect. It really wasn't all that suspect. It's just that they didn't need to be precise to that point. Our precise understanding today of the doctrine of the Trinity came in response to false ideas that arose as people began to think about the implications of one God and yet three persons. And so that's when it really started being debated at the levels that it ultimately did in the 4th century. By the way, Irenaeus, it's a name that uh, you may not be familiar with. He's one of the great heroes in church history. Uh, his His main contribution to his day was to fight Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a far, far bigger threat to the church than any of the heresies that we're going to talk about today with regard to the Trinity. It was as much philosophy as it was theology. Some people have gone so far to say that Gnosticism was actually a threat to Western civilization because of the disdain that Gnostics had for procreation. They said, look, this is this material world is evil and it's done for. We're trying to get to the spirit of, th- of things and, and we want to just not... 
continue to perpetuate civilization. Quit having children. And there were Gnostics on both sides of the scale. Some were wild men and women. I mean extremely wild. Hey, bodies, you know, it's going to all pass. No big deal. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Others were very uh, stoic and self-disciplined and did not entertain the pleasures of the flesh. But both of them said no value in having children. And so Irenaeus fought Gnosticism and was quite successful in doing so. Well, that's another study, another time. One of the earliest heresies about the Trinity that developed in the third century was a belief known as modalism. It's the belief that God is not three persons, but he's rather one person who reveals himself in three different modes, three different ways, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he is only one of these manifestations at a time. He manifests himself, he shows himself in this mode, but he can only be in one mode at a time. Pretty much they concluded he was God in the, God the Father in the Old Testament. He was Jesus in the Gospels. And he was the Holy Spirit after Pentecost. It was an attempt to deal with the idea in both realities that God is one and God is three. Now, modalism is not always an eternal damnation kind of heresy. I mean, you can be a modalist and still be a Christian. But... A lot of modalists aren't for other reasons. Uh, and, and it really wasn't a big deal, so the early church just quickly rejected this belief. I mean, how could Jesus pray to his Father in the garden? How could Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all be present at Jesus' baptism? It was untenable. The idea really didn't make much sense. So it was rejected, and, it's, and it stayed on the shelf of history for all of the rest of the church age, right? Unfortunately, no. There are modalists today, United Pentecostal churches. Not all Pentecostal, a specific denomination. United Pentecostal churches, United Apostolic churches are modalists, and so are some singers that you may know. Phillips, Craig, and Dean are modalists. And if you're over 35, you know who Phillips, Craig, and Dean are. If you're under, not a clue, not a chance. But I can tell you this, any Christian station, you're going to hear Phillips, Craig, and Dean sooner or later. I mean, any one that's not all done. A far more problematic belief in the early years was introduced by an Alexandrian priest, a North African priest named Arius. He ended up not being a terribly big player in the debates that his, uh, that his ideas generated. Arius stated that the three persons of the Trinity were distinct from one another. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Uh, his ideas garnered a significant following, so much so that the Emperor Constantine said, we need a council of all the great bishops and theologians of the day. Let's, let's meet in Nicaea, which is in present-day Turkey. You ever heard someone say that, I'll tell you when the church went downhill, was when Constantine saw that cross in the sky, legalized Christianity, in fact, made it the state religion, and the church became corrupt. Well, there's some truth to that. It's also true that that freedom that the theologians now all of a sudden had enabled them to debate these issues that were not only crucial then, are extremely crucial 
to us today. We are the beneficiaries of what happened once Christianity became legalized. And it's also true that we need to take advantage of the position that we have in the world today. Wes Myers was praying during the prayer time this morning, thanking the Lord for the freedom that we have to gather in this way. And, 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 and never take that for granted. And never just sit on the truth and the, and, and the potential that you have to learn and waste it. Take advantage of these days that the Lord has given us. We may not have them forever. We may not be free to gather 30 years from now, 15 years from now. Who knows? Well, Athanasius was the primary opponent of Arianism. Athanasius, again, a guy in church history, was a rock star. I mean, this guy was so important. God used him in a huge way to establish our understanding of God's truth. He was a young man at Nicaea and would lead the battle against Arianism throughout a good bit of the 4th century. I think he died in A.D. 376. But right in the middle of the century was when this debate was white hot. And Arius... uh, was already dead by then, but Ath- but his ideas lived on, and Athanasius was fighting it. And besides, by, by the way, Athanasius is also the guy who put his stamp of approval on the 29 books that we know as the New Testament. And it was pretty well accepted by most of the church. Everybody had a broad understanding that these are the books that God has determined to be scriptural. When Athanasius said, this is it, everybody said, okay, I'm cool with that. I mean, he was an important figure in church history. It wouldn't be accurate to say that Arius challenged orthodox doctrine and Athanasius defended it. There was no orthodox doctrine before the 4th century. It would be more accurate to say that Athanasius helped to formulate orthodox doctrine. And the popularity, and the reason that this is so, is because the popularity of Arius' beliefs about Jesus and about who he was required, they they demanded a statement of orthodox doctrine. It became a necessity. So what did Arius believe? Well, first of all, he believed that God was one, and thus the idea of a trinity was problematic. We've seen this before with the modalist. I mean, how do you deal with this idea that God is one, and yet you have these three persons? Arius' problem was that he made Scripture accommodate his beliefs rather than the other way around. I mean, he thought about God. See, that's the problem with, with ever, you know, somebody saying, what do you believe about such a thing? Well, I just think, really doesn't matter what we think. What does the Scripture teach? Well, Arius made Scripture accommodate his own thinking, his own ideas about God. He reasoned that if God is one, then it was absolutely necessary that Jesus was created. His famous statement, there was a time when he was not, pretty much sums up his thoughts about Jesus. There was a time when Jesus did not exist. He was created by the Father. And herein lies the problem with using Scripture to be precise about the the overall truth that God is communicating in His Word. When we say that Jesus was begotten by the Father, 
we mean that he was sent by the Father. When Arians say it, they mean that Jesus was created by the Father. It's no problem for them to say, Jesus came from God. Oh yeah, yeah, they believe that. But they point to the scripture that we read a while ago in John 8 and says, well look, Jesus said himself, I didn't come here of my own will. The Father sent me. So clearly he couldn't have been God. If Jesus was created by the Father, it only stands to reason that he was distinct in nature from the Father. In fact, Arius claimed, if it's necessary to use different names to describe Father, Son, and Spirit, then they've got to be different things. They've got to be different entities. Otherwise, why wouldn't you just say God 1, God 2, God 3? Kind of a thing. Since Arius believed that Jesus was created, he didn't believe that Jesus was capable of remaining perfect apart from God's determination and power. Well, you can see why these beliefs had to be dealt with and labeled heresy. Now, next week we'll talk about the Godhead and why it's important that Jesus be 100% God and 100% man in order to pay for our sins. And so, Arius was saying, no, it's more like 50-50. may not be the best description of his beliefs, but certainly it would come way closer than 100% God, 100% man. He's sort of God, but he was created, so he's a creature. It had to be called heresy. had to be. The orthodox position that was established declared that the Trinity is three persons having the same substance or essence. Arius uh, believed that the Trinity consisted of three persons with similar substance. I could have gone into the Greek words hypostasis and homoousios, but they played with the Greek in the same way that that people play with the English language today. And homoousios means of the same substance. Homoousios, similar substance. And all of those words, but, but see again, they would say, well, yeah. We can believe that. I, I can accept that. And then they turn around and go, that's not what I mean. <laughs> wasn't quite that petty, but it was pretty much the way it, it, it came about. And, and what happened at, at, at AD 325 at Nicaea was that the overwhelming majority accepted what they thought was an orthodox position. But a lot of them didn't really believe. They said, well, I'm saying this, but I think we mean different things. And so this debate went on and on and on and finally didn't get settled till 381 at the Council of Constantinople. Many of the finer points were clarified by then. We may spend a little more time here next week or we may not. So why is it important enough to take an entire Sunday morning to discuss all of this when we could be directly looking it's scripture. Well, for starters, it's important to know that all of the work that was done in those early years laid a foundation for us that makes it possible for us to drink deeply from God's Word without really having to deal with those issues in our mind. And when we go to Scripture, we just automatically assume that Jesus was God. And I think I mentioned this earlier. Once it was accepted that Jesus was God, yeah, I did. Holy Spirit, then it was... Um, it was just, okay, let's add this and, and move on. Um, but, but another reason, a, a more important reason is that we're going to discuss in the coming weeks groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons that embrace beliefs 
that are Aryan in nature are having an extremely negative impact on our family members and our neighbors and our co-workers. And they're saying, no, you've got to understand. When you understand the Greek, John 1, 1, that says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and, and Word being Jesus there. So in other words, in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. In the Greek, you got to understand that that really means Jesus was a God. And again, maybe we'll talk about reasons for that. Well, we will when we talk about how to witness to, to, to Jehovah's Witnesses. What are you going to do with that? I mean, you, you, suppose you've got an uncle or a cousin or a, or, or a sister who has been impacted and, and, and is interested. You know, these Jehovah's, I've never seen anybody quite like them. I mean, it's warm. It's the way they live. And, and you know what they told me about Jesus? What are you going to say to them? You've got to understand what the debate is about. So that's why it's worth taking a whole Sunday and, and then some. And, and by the way, you go a great deal more into detail with Scripture at the home fellowships. And I know not everybody's going to go. I'm going to put them on my blog, which will... You can get to from our church website, and you can find that in our church bulletin. They're going to be about a week behind sermons and notes for the home fellowships. But, but let me encourage you to really think deeply about all of this stuff. Well, it's not a good place to stop, but we got to stop. And i got to know from you. So I want you to shake your head this way or that way. Don't wimp out in the first service and just, you know, do the... Uh, like they did in the first service. Did you understand this or not? Bunch of liars. <laughs> Just kidding. In the first service, a couple of them went. You know, it's, uh, it's easy. some people, it's just really easy to get, and others, it's just really difficult to get, and I'm preaching for those right in the middle, and I don't think there's anybody there. So, But, I hope that it's, it increases your interest. There are a lot of a lot of books. Some of the books go into great detail about these debates. Some don't go very far at all. And they just basically said what I said today. Here's what we believe. And this is uh, it. Didn't we didn't get to this place easily? But oh, how grateful we are! Well, uh, worship team is going to come and lead us in a song as we take our benevolence offering this morning.